Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 463, which is Richard Crudo, who's an incredible cinematographer and director uh, with an enormous amount of experience. He was, in fact, the ASC president for over six years. Uh, he has incredible experience, uh, highly still very involved with the ASC, which is the American Society of Cinematographers. Uh, he trained under people like Gordon Willis, who, if you don't know who Gordon Willis is. He uh, was the cinematographer for The Godfather and Laszlo Kovacs. If you don't know who he is, he did Easy Rider and uh, Five Easy Pieces. So he really comes from a long history and legacy in cinematography and it's really amazing to have him on this podcast. Not only do we have him on the podcast, but he's actually helping us uh, on a very special project that is going on with the Innovation Lab. And I don't know how we were able to work with Richard, but he has been a godsend of information and of knowledge and of uh, creative input onto some of the things that we're developing there. So really great to have him working with us. And I can't wait to have him again on because we don't exactly talk about what's going on in labs because it's not been uh, finished yet. Uh, but we do talk about his history. I knew I wanted to introduce him to uh, the podcast, and we will do a follow-up episode with him to talk more about that project when it gets wrapped up. But really just an incredible person to have on, really nice guy, le learning constantly from him, which is really amazing. And this podcast was sort of a testament to some of the incredible lessons that he can teach us in terms of his knowledge and cinematography. So really cool to have Richard on uh, and look forward to having him on again. Okay, I do have uh, a few announcements I want to let you guys know about. First of all, uh, there has been an update too for V-Ray 6 for Maya and Houdini. Actually, many cool things have been updated to that, and you guys can just go to chaos.com to find out more about that. But the more important thing that I want you guys to know about real quick is that, yes, we have updated Material X support in that. Uh, so that is really, really great. We do, yes, have native Material X support, both in Maya and Houdini in V-Ray 6 update too. So definitely go check those out. Again, all of our product updates are at chaos.com. Uh, we also want to announce a couple of events going on. Uh, February 27th, which is in fact tomorrow, Tuesday, February 27th, we'll be having Chaos Unbox, which is going to be one of our live events that's happening online. If you want to know more about that, just go to chaos.com slash unboxed. Uh, and uh, there's going to be some cool announcements there. So again, uh, go to chaos.com slash unboxed. And that is going to be happening February 27th, which is on Tuesday, tomorrow. Uh, okay, we have several other events. Of course, all of our other events, including uh, unbox events, are listed at chaos.com slash events. But I want to tell you guys about uh, NVIDIA's GTC uh, AI Summit that's happening uh, in San Jose. And that's going to be March 20, uh, 17th through the 20th. Uh, uh, Vlado is going to be there along with several other people from Chaos, uh, and there's going to be some interesting things happening there. So definitely go check that out if you're going to GTC, uh, which is the GPU Technology Conference. Uh, that's happening again uh, NVIDIA's GTC Conference in San Jose, 17th through the 20th. Uh, lots of other events are also listed at chaos.com slash events, so make sure and follow us there. Now, if you guys want to know more about the podcast, of course, you can always go to our podcast podcast page, which is chaos.com slash cggarage, uh, where we have all of our podcasts. Uh, you can also follow us on our social media, which is uh, facebook.com slash cggaragepodcast. If you'd like to watch us, all of our videos, including the podcast, are at uh, youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. Again, youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. 
But for now, please enjoy episode number 463 with Richard Crudeau. Welcome to another CG Garage where the Chaos Group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Okay, Richard. So thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I'm obviously going to do a little bit of an intro before this, but it was awesome spending the week with you last week and sort of, uh, you know, figuring out new stuff that we're doing. I'm going to give people a little bit of an idea of what that is. But I'd love you have an incredible history in, in cinematography, uh, and uh, I'd love to people to get a little bit of an idea of that background. What got you into films? What got you into cinematography? You know. I was the luckiest guy in the world because I basically stumbled into it. Um, I wasn't one of those kids who I liked movies like we all did as kids, but I, I wasn't one of those people who were obsessed by it, knew what they wanted to do from 10 years of age. Mm -hmm. uh, I was really, I was in college and I was really more at that time obsessed with baseball. And um, I, I really had, I wouldn't say I was aimless. I was looking for an aim um, and, uh, things like law school and things like that didn't appeal to me. And I, um, took a film course and, um, the teacher was a, also a, um, writer, director of commercials in New York. And a few months later he was doing a shoot and needed some help. And he said, who wants to make a hundred bucks? I said, sure, I'll come in and move some stuff around. And I was introduced to a set just like that. And I saw the camera sitting on the dolly and the camera guys were, a cool bunch of people and I hung in with them a little bit and the seed was planted and uh, I continued to do that sort of thing, PA work, and then gravitated towards the camera department. And it was basically one foot in front of the other. I, I was taken by it very quickly and it hit me just at the right place in the right time. And um, I found that I liked it very much. I had a little proclivity for it and, I, and it really ignited a passion that's lasted a lifetime. Um, if I had to give you a step-by-step plan to try to relate to another person like here's how you should do it i would be yeah. the exactly wrong person to ask it was really just one foot in front of the other and looking for opportunities and trying to better yourself each time out and i became an assistant cameraman and, and worked a lot in that capacity and just went up through the ranks basically so you just basically started off as a pa on set and then slowly slowly yeah. i guess the camera sort of appealed to you right yeah yeah and it was in new york i grew up in new york and um it was a, I, I had no, it's best that I was ignorant to the challenges ahead. I, I really had no idea what I was facing or where it was going to lead. Um, it was a very small community of filmmakers in New York, very tightly knit and very difficult nut to crack. Uh, mm. I really don't know how I did it, except my head probably was harder than the nut I was trying to crack. Um, just stuck to it. And I was so into it and obsessed by it then at a certain point where um, it was all I was interested in. And I just became a sponge for all of it. And I was very, I was highly motivated and highly energetic about it, but I was also highly ignorant to the process. 
what what was it that did you have a bit of a technical background that that sort of in terms of technology and stuff that sort of gravitated the camera as something that was interesting to you in that filmmaking process? Not at all. That's the funny thing. I mean, I would when I was a kid, I'd pick up the family Instamatic occasionally and take a snapshot, and right. I. I was interested in photography on a certain level, but never to the point where I ever imagined this was something you could do with your life. I mean, right. we went to the movies all the time as kids, as young people, teenagers do, and it never, it was always something that happened in Hollywood 3,000 miles away, and, and people like us didn't do that. That's That was not our thing. Who knew anybody? Right. We didn't know anyone in that world. So it was very alien to me. As far as a technical background, um, not so much. Um, uh, even to this day, I, obviously, I have a grip on the technology, and I am aware of it, and I know how to use it, but it's not the prime motivator for me as it is for some people. Uh, I have colleagues who can talk about every little pixel all day long, but I go back to Conrad Hall, who was a great cinematographer, used to say, it, it's, not re it's not a requirement for a cinematographer to know the chemical composition of the emulsion that he's using. And um, right. you just have to know how to use it. And um, right. that part is really what appeals to me more, the um, application of it more than the minutia. Although I am fascinated by it on a certain level. You couldn't do this and not be. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it sounds, uh, it's it's kind of an, an amazing process. So it's just kind of interesting. That I think like most people, when you're watching a movie at a young age, you don't think about the fact that there's someone behind that camera that's holding it, right? Or that's manipulating it, right? No, no. Most people, I think even today, think the director does everything. Right. Um, writes it, shoots it, does the costumes. I, I, most people, I mean, my own family don't really have a clear idea of what I do at this point. So, yeah, it, it's kind of funny. I still get a lot of laughs out of that. At, uh, yeah, it's true. Everybody. No matter how hard I try to explain it to them, I, I really don't think it, it sinks in because it's still this sort of cloistered world, although it, it's still it's much more open to people today with the web and what have you than it was certainly when either one of us were coming up. But sure. um, it, it's... It's just endlessly fascinating to me. Did you have someone sort of take you under their wing in terms of, you know, when in those early days to sort of help you figure things out? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. Um, a, a friend's father, um, someone I met later, was an editor in New York of documentaries. And he gave me some very good advice about approaching the union and how to get started in that department. But once I, I got into the union in New York in local 644 as, a, as a, an assistant cameraman, mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't say I had any specific mentor in place, but there were a lot of transient mentors, let's say, along the way. I, I was very, very fortunate in that I fell in with a good group that worked on great feature films. And most of the great features that either originated in New York or came through New York from Hollywood through the 80s. Um, I was on the crew of many of them. For some of the mm. best cinematographers, um, Gordon Willis in New York, um, I worked on a film with Vilmos Zygmunt, Laszlo Kovacs, Michael Chapman. And, Those um, are the best of the best. <laughs> indeed. I mean, I knew what I was dealing with at the time. But even now, I look back and, boy, was I lucky, wow, to be exposed to those people and see how they yeah. work and take from each one and ask an odd question here or there. 
and try to maintain the relationships. I got to know each of those people uh, much, much more intimately later in life. But at that time, um, I, I really tried to absorb as much as I could, even, even from a distance, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, what was, what were some of your feelings about those, uh, those early days? I mean, working on those films, I mean, in the eighties where you work, what, what, what were some of the favorite features that you remember working on at that time? Oh, with Gordon Willis, uh, I was on Broadway, Danny Rose, uh, yeah. Purple Rose of Cairo, um, Presumed Innocent, The Money Pit, um, films wow. like that. Laszlo, um, I forget what the film with Laszlo was. Michael Chapman was Ghostbusters 2. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, were, there were quite a few. And um, each one naturally had their own style and their own challenges and things. And I was a copious note taker, you know, as an assistant cameraman. If once the camera's up and maintained and you're in the right spot and you've got all your ducks in a row, you've got an appreciable amount of time to sit and watch while the lighting goes on. And I would sit and scribble notes and draw diagrams and and try to take away as much as I could. It was a, a very fruitful time. I, I didn't waste any time. And in those yeah. days, resources were very thin. You know, today... You look on the web and there's just so much information. I'm envious of young people today when I look and see what's there so handily available and courses and lectures and all kinds of things you can attend and draw from. But when I was coming up, especially in New York, maybe in Hollywood it was different, but in New York, you were really to a great extent on your own and you really had to go to the the deepest, darkest places, the obscure places. I had a guy who was a book finder. This is way before the web. And you'd call this guy and you'd have a title and he'd somehow search it out. And I'd find names of these obscure books written by a cinematographer in the 30s or 40s. And this guy would search them out for me and just inhale the contents, you know. Right. It was, um, it was a fruitful, busy, interesting time. And I still yeah. draw on today many of the lessons I learned then. They still hold up. And I try to pass them along to students whenever I talk to them. I think it's really, really great because I think the one thing I was going to get to is, you know, how, how some of this history is not necessarily, you know, how what we're dealing with now is not necessarily new problems or new, new, new ideas. And that to learn from some of that history is really a, sort of a good thing. Uh, how, has, well, how has... You know, obviously now things are very different, right? You were shooting on film back then. Uh, exposures yep. were different. Ex you know, you needed a lot more light to light things. Uh, you didn't deal with visual effects. Uh, what are the biggest changes that you've that you've noticed in terms of? Let's just go with cameras. Like how 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 the camera worked back then and and now. Well, the the most obvious change I think would be for the position of the cinematographer. Um, mm. In those days. In the film era, the cinematographer was really the only person who had any clue of what you were filming was going to look like. And you had to wait until the next day, in most cases, to see it. Um, that held a lot of mystery. It held a lot of power. It held a lot of um, things that are gone now because everyone sees the image immediately. The flip side of that is it leads to a lot fewer sleepless nights because uh, very often you'd be shooting something you say, boy, I hope this comes out. I don't know. I'm out on the ragged edge here and I don't yep. know what's going to happen, but you would never 
translate that to anyone. You always have to be, it's going to be great. But yeah. I remember many nights tossing a turn and then just waiting for dailies. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 5 a.m. Be at the lab at 5 a.m. to see it come right out of the developer with the daily supervisor and watch it on the high speed and go, oh, thank God it worked or it didn't. Or I have to make an adjustment or how are we going to fix this? But most times I was very fortunate. Most times everything worked out just fine. But nowadays mm -hmm. the cameras are so much more sensitive to light. You need so much less light. You see the results immediately, pretty damn close to what they're going to be at the end if you're doing it right. Um, there is a great, great advantage to that. Uh, I can't think that uh, I have no real nostalgia for the film era. Um, on a certain personal level, I do just because I experienced it, but I don't, I, I'm not one of those guys who would look back and say, oh, things were better then. Um, right. There was a period during the transition in which I think the profession and the industry itself were really on the fence about how it was going to turn out. Um, you know, Sony was trying to force us to use what were essentially ENG cameras to shoot feature films, claiming it was better than film, which it wasn't. You know, film was up at say 10 and those were down at about a three, but gradually they caught up and then ultimately superseded film. I mean, we can do things today that are, that we would impossible to realize on film and we can do them now so handily and quickly and efficiently. And um, there's no compare. I mean, it's almost a situation where if you can imagine it, you can do it very quickly and very efficiently. And, um, there's no way except forward. You know, Vittorio Storaro, I think, said it best. You can, you can help progress or you can slow it, but you can't stop it. And even Storaro himself, one of our great cinematographers, has embraced digital technology and brought every bit of his artistry that he had on film to the digital side. I mean, it's more about what's in here than anything else or what's in, in your heart, your chest than anything else. And that doesn't change whether you're using film or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, that's a you know, beautiful way to, to, to think about it. I, I <clears throat> am fascinated by the ideas of, you know, as you know, I have my podcast with my other two cohorts of uh, the, Daniel Thrawn and Eric Schiele. And we talk about like some of the old films from the seventies and we are, somewhat nostalgic as viewers for some of that style and some of those views, yeah. right? Especially Gordon Willis, we talk about him quite a bit. Uh, so is there something that those restrictions or those, uh, those, uh, those barriers sort of enabled creatively, so sort of forced you into a style that was kind of interesting in some ways? Well, I, I think it forced a little bit more of a deliberate, thoughtful approach. Um, it, having seen both sides of it and been deeply involved in both sides of it, uh, things were, when you hit the switch on a film camera and you could hear it running through the gate and you hear it in the mag, there was something serious taking place. You know, mm -hmm. something a little bit, everything had to be just right by that point. Um, I'm not saying that it's not that way now on the digital side, but there's a tendency to be a little bit freer and a little bit more careless and a little bit more, oh, we have other ways of dealing with this rather than getting it right, right now uh, right. than there used to be. 
So um, that's, I think, a personal thing up to the temperament of the filmmakers involved. But I've seen it more and more widespread since the change into the digital world we're living in. Uh, on the film side, it was time was money and film was money. And it was a very serious effort to maximize everything as well as you could at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, they still had the Instamatic cameras, right? And you had yes. like 24 shots and you better get all of those right because otherwise it costs money, right? And That's so right. now when you're on your phone, you just go click, 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 click. Yes, it's, it's a very similar analogy. Yes, right. because um, you could put that cassette into the Instamatic and it might stay there from Christmas till the next birthday, till 4th of July, till whenever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yep. it was, yeah, we only, uh, we only took it out on occasions, you know? Yeah, exactly. Now, I don't even want to think about how many photographs I've taken with my iPhone just since January 1st. <laughs> yep, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, that's great. Um, you, so, so I know you, you also got very involved with the ASC. And, uh, you know, this, this podcast is pretty broad. Um, and so a lot of people know who the ASC are, and some people may not know who the ASC is. Yes. So can you give us a little bit of an overview of what the ASC is, what its responsibility is, and how it has it sort of influenced uh, filmmaking and, and, and the organization in some ways? Yes, the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers, it's the oldest organization in Hollywood. It was founded in 1919. It's older than the Academy, in fact. And it's an honorary organization. Uh, membership is by invitation only to highly qualified directors of photography. And the organization exists primarily to champion the interests of this and, and to advance the interests of the cinematographer. Technically, mm -hmm. Uh, socially, we have a great educational effort. The organization has um, runs master classes, talks to students, brings students into the clubhouse in Hollywood. There's a, a fabulous headquarters at the corner of Orange and Franklin in Hollywood, across from the Magic Castle. And yep. um, yeah, it's it's a, a fabulous place, and we're very very lucky to have it. I don't know what those guys were thinking in the mid thirties when they bought this place at the height of the depression, but we thank them for it all the time. Um, so we have a lot of educational events there, not just for the students, but for members when um, the manufacturers want to introduce a new piece of technology, a camera or such, they'll generally bring it to the ASC first and show it to the membership to get some feedback. But it's just a wonderful, wonderful organization. If you do this sort of thing, it really, gives you access to so, so much to expand your horizons. Uh, I can't say enough about the place. And a great group of people, lovely people all around. When they go in, they leave their egos at the door, and it's all about the art and craft of cinematography. It's, it's really a great place to hang. Right, right. So it's, in a lot of ways, it's very similar. Or at least sounds like it was the model for what we tried to do with the VES in terms of, of that yes, kind of organization. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Right. A bunch of people who are obsessed about the same topic and yep. they all throw in together and um, it's just terrific. Yeah. And you, you've been, you've been president of the ASC for a couple of times. What, what is it, what's it, what's it yes. like to be president and what are some of your responsibilities at that time? Well, uh, I was president for six one year terms, actually 20, 2003 to six and 13 to uh, 15. Wow. Uh, it's not something that you generally uh, seek or campaign for. Uh, the mm. first time around, I was sort of dragooned into it by the older guys who had been there, the Laszlo's, Vilmoshes, 
Owen Roysman, people like that, who are looking to um, get a little younger blood into the flow. And being president, it's like running any other organization, I suppose. A lot of it is ceremonial. Uh, there's policy stuff, um, working with the staff to make sure that our events go off properly and just trying to look ahead and see what's right. best for the art and the craft, you know, looking for what is what are the best things we can do to remain the thought leaders on cinematography across the world of movie making. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing. Um, I want to, so I'm going to jump around a little bit. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned you worked on Ghostbusters too. So I'm thinking about like the early days of visual effects and you've obviously, you know, there's a lot of Hollywood trickery that happens in front of the lens uh, and sort of your thoughts on how, how that has evolved and how you've been involved on the technical side of visual effects and, and what you've seen evolve in that, that area. Well, I remember being involved in shooting a lot of plates in those days. Uh, we'd always use a Mitchell camera or at least a Panavision Panastar camera because it had dual pin registration for extra steadiness in the gate as the exposure was made. And we were always so careful about measurements, um, lens height, distance from the subject, focus, time of day, sky conditions, every single variable you could possibly imagine. I remember being handed uh, clipboards with forms that we'd have to fill out every single possible stat that would inf influence the shot in some way, and then handing it off to the special effects department. Everything was much more cumbersome, I think, in a way, compared to today. Mm -hmm. um, when special effects were going on, everything tended to stop and recalibrate for what they were doing and all attention paid to that while that was happening. Whereas so much of what we do today, the effects just sort of organically grow out of what we're doing rather than being something that feels entirely separate and not fully integrated to the life of, of what you're doing in the moment. Do you, I mean, there's all, I think there's obviously, you know, you, you, you were there doing some of the practical stuff and people had to really think about everything that's going on. And then we sort of gotten to, we got to a point where everyone was just shot on a blue screen and then you sort of had to hope for the best. Were you part of like, how did that sort of <laughs> evolution happen where you, you almost lost control over 90% of the picture that was actually in front of you? Yes. Well, my, most of my blue screen experience, oddly enough, were on commercials. And yeah. uh, in that situation, you really felt because you're only there for a couple of days and you really just felt like a gun for hire gathering material that was going to be tossed over the transom that you'd never see again and have no influence over again. Just get a good exposure and go home, basically. Right. Um, which it had to be done and it had to be done properly, but it wasn't the most interesting idea. Uh, the company that that. I most frequently worked with at that time was R. Greenberg in New York, and they were a very, very busy effects house at that time. And the interesting part came at the end of the process when you get a call, hey, you want to come in and take a look at this and see the finished product and go, wow, that's pretty good. I didn't, couldn't have even imagined it like that when we were doing it live. But most of the time, it turned out pretty well. Um, the odd thing is later years shooting especially episodic material on green screen, car shots, car shots, mm -hmm. driving shots. I, I was so rarely pleased with the results. 
no matter how hard I would try to communicate with the special effects supervisor, they would never balance the exposure between the interior of the car and the exterior properly. Um, yep. It was so such a just a, a hit or miss proposition. Maybe once in a while something would look right by mistake, but the day exteriors between the inside of the car and the exterior rarely looked right. And it seemed to me to give away the effect. It just oh gosh, that's blue screen. And, I mean green screen. It just doesn't look so good, but it is what it right. is, and you yeah. have to live with it. Nowadays with LED walls, it, it's I never want to do it any other way. <laughs> I mean, it's just so right. incredible because you see it live and you can tune everything to perfection. Your interior exposure, yeah. exterior exposure, color, and that's it. It's just, it's such a, a brilliant step forward, I think. Yeah. And, um, that's the only, really, the only way I'd ever want to work if possible. I, I completely agree. I think car shots are so intermittent and they're very, like you said, they're rarely hits <laughs> yeah. in those days. Yeah. Yeah, and I've um, seen some really appalling examples too. You go, oh my God, what were they thinking? But I guess they run out of time or just don't have the eye for it. It's strange, very strange. Yeah, I've, I've seen better examples in Hitchcock films. <laughs> oh, good God, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 I did a short, uh, which some of my listeners did, where we were actually on the we were going to be in a car and we knew, even though we were visual effects people, we didn't actually put green screen or blue screen back there. We just put white and just blew out mm. the background because yeah. of the exposure. And it looked completely believable. And most yeah. people just believed we were in a moving car. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure. I, I've done that in a variety of situations where you say, just blow it out and it works. Absolutely yeah. works. Sometimes it's better in fact, than so, so green screen. Yep. And if you just cut back and forth to outside the car, inside the car, you, you feel never, that you saw what was outside in the car. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's, it's um, a quick solution. It, it works in, yeah. across a variety of situations, not just moving cars and things like that, but especially if, if it's cutting quickly. It, it's one of our little tricks that we don't like to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, it's very interesting. A lot of people don't realize how much DPs are involved in the filmmaking process. Like you said, your family doesn't even know what you do, right? But, you know, having witnessed you uh, uh, as a DP, I, I know these things, but it's just a reminder to me, like, you going to director and saying, are you sure you want to shoot it this way? Because in the edit, you're going to have to cross the line. So you have yeah. to think, as you're shooting, you're thinking about the edit. You're thinking about everything yes. that's going on. It's not just about making sure it's a nice, pretty exposure, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, cinematographer absolutely has to think like an editor. Uh, right. Probably the best one I ever saw in that capacity was Gordon Willis. Uh, mm. His process, well, here's the thing. Some directors are very knowledgeable and can say, I want a 35 millimeter lens here. We'll take it from here to here. We'll pan and then I'll be it. Great. That's terrific. Other directors are more actor or performance story oriented and they'll leave more of those decisions or at least suggestions to the cinematographer. Uh, Gordon, well, in the days where well, there's a little background, the days when Gordon was working and Victor Kemper and Laszlo and Conrad Hall and those guys in the 60s and 70s, they were hired specifically because of what they brought to the show. 
not just because they, someone needed a cinematographer and he was available. It was someone was available. He was the third guy on the list, and he said yes. They they were hired for their what they brought to the show that no one else could do. So in Gordon's case, he worked mostly with directors who wanted to lean on the cinematographer for the staging and the blocking and the shot compositions. So his way of working was to take a, I use my iPhone now and an app, but same idea, a Alan Gordon viewfinder, which gave you a variety of focal lengths within your aspect ratio, and the actors would rehearse and he'd use the finder in, in collaboration with the director. How about we start here, frame up a shot with a, a 40 millimeter lens, let's say, and okay, that's one. And the assistant would trail with a piece of cross of tape, white tape and a 30, 40 millimeter lens. They'd measure the height, 37 inches from the ground, right here, shot number one. And go around and right. block the entire scene like that. In essence, shooting only what was necessary for the scene, not doing five wide shots, a close-up on everyone, and over-the-shoulder on everyone, breaking something out that, you know, he shot. The beauty of his approach was, and I've tried very hard to adapt that, and I think I've finally gotten to that point, it was simplicity. Uh, and he said it took him 30 years to make to learn to be simple. And I understand that. When, when he said that when I was an assistant, I said, God, what's he talking about? When I started to do it, I understood it implicitly. It's very hard to be simple, and it takes a long time to figure that out, both aesthetically and technically. Mm -hmm. But he would always strive to keep things as simple as possible, use the fewest number of lighting units to get it done, impart the essential information to the viewer in the least obtrusive way. And, right. that's how, and that goes back to thinking like an editor, because, you know, Editors very often will want you to shoot everything in the, every doorknob in the building. They can't have enough material. And I've worked in episodic television in which the, the order is to not so much to do the right thing, but to just do a lot of it, you know, right. and let us figure it out later. And that's one approach, but not one that's terribly appealing both to do or to watch for the most part. When you get it down to the simple aspects, I think you serve the story better. And Gordon was a master at that. And that goes back to thinking like an editor. And I think we all have to if we're going to be reasonably successful in what we're trying to do. Because once you start to pile on things one on top of the other, you, you start to lose your entire reason for why you're there. You know, you just you get so lost in the weeds, you forget what you're trying to do. And that's really what it's all about. I think that's brilliant. And, and honestly speaking, <clears throat> I think it sort of plays to the idea like, you know, we, especially now, as you mentioned, we, we get used to fixing it in post, right? Which is kind yeah. of not necessary. And post is, includes editorial, right? We'll just cover yeah. everything and then edit editorial will put yeah. it together. Uh, and that's sort of not fair to the filmmaking process because there's no intent yes. to anything. <laughs> yeah, there's no point of view. You know, right. there's no directorial intent. There's no point of view on the material. I mean, different compositions, different focal lengths, different whether to move or not to move, uh, high, low. It, all of these things have meaning if you do it right to the story in terms of serving the story. And just to hose down a space, it's really, it's counterproductive. It's not good. Right. 
Right. At the same time, you know, something we've discussed actually specifically about Gordon Willis and the way that he worked is that he was doing things then that were, first of all, were never done and probably could never be done today, right? Like he was, wasn't he, wasn't his nickname the Prince of Darkness? Like he made things really dark. Well, yeah, that's a little bit of a misnomer. He did shoot dark things, but not everything. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, he he wouldn't have that title unless there was something to trance, to play against it, you know, mm-hmm. something to give it a uh, contrast, let's say. Uh, so he has dark sequences in many of his movies, but the movies as overall are not generally dark. They're dark when they're supposed to be dark and, and right. bright when they're supposed to be bright. But- We've gotten used to that now at this point in history. When he started doing that in the late 60s and early 70s, most notably with the Godfather films, it was earth shattering. Nobody had ever seen movies lit like that before, and it really shook the industry up. Uh, We've accepted so much of that now. It's become absorbed into the culture. It's convention now. We used I mean, I watch Netflix like we all do, and very often I'll, I'll be sitting there and say to myself, man, that is just too, I love dark, like all cameramen. But I go, I can't see anything. There's nothing, that's, <laughs> that's not good. That's not good either. It's too far in the other direction. Right. But, you know, you need that contrast of light and dark to sell both of them, to make them both work. But that convention that we're used to now, it's not earth shattering anymore. It's just, oh, that's all right. It's dark. We live with it. It's okay. So, but back then it was really quite something. Um, you know, he was so scorned by the mainstream Hollywood community because of what he had done and shaken things up in such a way that the old timers just could not accept. I mean, the old timers were, you know, arcs and, and 10 Ks and, you know, a key light at 800 foot candles. I mean, just, you right. could, Cook, cook a hamburger under those lights. And you know, even at night, night scenes, you watch night scenes in old films and they're out in the middle of the ocean or the desert and it's lit up like Times Square on New Year's Eve. Well, yeah, I'm surprised actors that, aren't bl- more, more actors aren't blind from all those lights. Oh my it's goodness. Crazy. Yeah. And, and when he, let's say the Godfather films, <clears throat> he was so scorned because of that approach. I mean, one and two are probably among the top two best photographed films in the history of motion pictures. He wasn't even nominated for an Oscar for either one. When and Clute when, neither. Clute is another one that's amazing. Clute, talk about dark. It's darker yeah. than The Godfather. Yeah. And in 1974, when uh, Godfather Part Two came out, Towering Inferno won the Oscar. Now, this is no knock against uh, Fred Konekamp and Joe Byrock, who won the Oscar for that film. They, they split the duties. But Towering Inferno versus The Godfather Part Two, which didn't even get nominated, that's yeah. how, how much he shook things up at the time. And people forget that. It's 50 years ago, and I understand that. But it really was, he, he really, and Conrad Hall to a certain extent as well, they really, at the same time, changed the way movies had been looking. And that opened up the gates to the incredible run of the 1970s that we're all so fond of. Yeah. I uh, do you think we're ripe for that time? Do you think there's something going on now that we're ripe for a, a shift in that Boy, style I, and food meal? Well, I, I, I sure would hope so. Um, you know, between the pandemic and the strike, 
we're still in, I think, a period of recovery, uh, certainly as far as, as the theaters and feature films are concerned. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, when, when I was a kid, I'm sure when you were a kid, movies had a, they occupied a different place in the culture. You know, we all saw the same films at the theater, and that was the, right. the cultural touchstone, and everybody had the same reference points. There are so many things competing for people's attention today, least of all just trying to survive their lives, that movies just don't have the same spot in the culture, you know? What you see on television, uh, the streamers, there's some fantastic stuff, great, but it's not the same. It's just not mm -hmm. the same as seeing something in a theater. Uh, I went to see Oppenheimer last summer in a full IMAX presentation with the giant screen. I hadn't been to an IMAX, a full-on IMAX presentation in quite some time, and I'd sort of forgotten the scale of it. And it was just so, so incredible. 10 a.m. show on a Tuesday morning in a full house. The theater was full. And three-hour movie, and you did not even hear one seat squeak or anybody run out of the place. It was, it was captivating. It was incredible. And it, I came out of the theater so excited about movies again, you know. And half the crowd ran across the mall to catch the Barbie show that was starting right. after Oppenheimer. The typical classic thing. But... It was so exciting to see that sort of energy, feel that sort of energy and see that sort of excitement among people going to a theater to see a movie again. And I was really hoping that that would give some lift to it. And maybe it will. It will prove that way in time. But we need great stories. You know, we need good stories. I mean, Oppenheimer yeah. was a terrific story. And um, I, I think it's true. I mean, uh, Dano was, was, was talking about it's like the fact that, you know, uh, uh, a history piece about a physicist from the 1950s makes a billion dollars <laughs> means we're ready for movies and stories again. Boy. Yeah. I, I you know, it's the same old story, same old thing. If stories. If good stories are produced, people will go out, they'll come and see it. But that experience of seeing it in a theater is just un, unmatchable. It's just terrific. Yeah, you know, same yeah. thing when um, I went to see um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the theater, and it was just, you know. But look at Nolan and Tarantino. I mean, two movie lovers. They, they you can see that their passion for what they do just comes off them, and that's right. a big part of it too. You know, it can't just be a, a cynical thing thrown up there. All right, you know, going to make this thing and make a billion dollars. No, no, it doesn't work like that. There is that intangible that is still there. It has always been there, but it's still there, maybe a little dormant now, but hopefully it'll come back to life. And uh, boy, I would love to see that. I, I don't know where or how it would go. Um, it'll be digital, that's for sure, and that's good. But um, man, the sooner the better. I think that the problem is that people are going to look, you mentioned Tarantino and Nolan, they're going to look at it and it's like, ah, oh, that's because they shot it on film. So now we just, you know, shoot it on film and it'll be better. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I admire that uh, just on an artistic level, but I don't think that has anything to do with it. If you've got right. a good story, you could shoot it, you know, through the bottom of a Coke bottle and yep. print it on an old doormat and the story will carry. If the story's not there, it doesn't matter what technology you use. Uh, it has to be a good yeah. story, well told. You know, the funny thing that reminds me, Chris, talking to a lot of students, and I see young people all the time who have never shot film, who are 
they have this romantic notion about it. They're, they're, they're nostalgic about something they didn't really experience. And it, mm-hmm. it drives me crazy because I, I just lecture them. I say, you can't do that. I mean, you can be curious about it and maybe want to do it out of curiosity, but you can't attach yourself to that at this point in history. Uh, that's yeah. over. And um, your future, you're 22 years old, your future is digital. That's, and it's going to change to something else from digital. You can't be looking backwards for your satisfaction because you're never going to get it. Kodak, Kodak just released another eight millimeter camera. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What does it cost? It's expensive, isn't it? it costs it's like expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, that's great. I, look, it should remain a choice. Sure. That's what it should be. Film should remain yeah. a choice, should be a viable choice, and it should stay there for as long as we make visual entertainment. But yeah. as the primary thing, it, it's just that's just not the way of the world anymore. Sure. Now, you've had obviously a close relationship. Uh, you know, you're, I, I loved working with you because I like you really understand. We communicate very well. Like you understand visual effects, you understand what we're trying to do. So obviously, you have a lot of uh, understanding of of the visual effects process. That relationship that you've had with a visual effects uh, supervisor, how has how do you feel about where we are today on that in that process? Oh, I think it's getting better and better all the time. The the, the crossover knowledge that's required of both parties has become very common. Um, in past years, I, it was a little more segregated, I think. And mm-hmm. there was a little, a lot more mystery attached to the special effects side and maybe a little resistance from the production side uh, in terms of losing control. But I think today there's so much more collaboration and everyone else is, is pretty savvy about each other's roles and, and jobs and how to make as long as you're working towards the same end, it's always good. It's always good. And, and keeping an open mind and, and making sure that there's an agreement on the vision that right. people are. And this is not just with visual effects. This has to be with every department and it has to be, be between a director and cinematographer as well. You know, there's a tendency um, if there's not good leadership, there's a tendency often on a production for every department to be making its own movie. You know, wardrobe is making their movie the way they see it. Production design is doing the same. You know, you can't have that. Everyone has to be on the same page and, and that unified vision. So as long as there's um, open communication, it, it's always interesting and always fruitful that way. Absolutely. Um, uh, there's also, you know, there's another thing that sort of <clears throat> I noticed a lot in, in the last, not not as much more re- in the recent years, but not long, is there's been a huge amount of reliance on concept art, and that that mm. that they here's a concept art, and you have to make that picture. And it almost feels like every frame is an establishing shot of a concept art. Like, how do you yes. feel about that as opposed to like you were saying the story and thinking about the edit? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's more common in in the big superhero films and and science fiction type things where you're really trying to create an alternate reality that people aren't really familiar with. I suppose it comes down to how you interpret it, how the director wants to go with it. Um, it, These are good jump off spots. And, you know, talk about concept art. If it translates to the production design, production design is... might be overstating it, but not by much. It's 90% of what I can deliver. You know, right. if you've got great sets and great locations and fabulous concepts and things that will be filled in with effects, 
then my job is not so much to make it good. It's to just don't mess it up. You know, <laughs> um, and if you've got subpar stuff and it doesn't really fit the story and it somehow is, is not in keeping with the style you're after, then, you know, all the lighting in the world is not going to cure that. So they can be very helpful. And as long as there's some room for maybe a quick change or a different direction, or they're used as a starting point for where you want to get to, then they can be very valuable. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's been, uh, this has been a discussion. I'm obviously part of a lot of visual effects uh, uh, the groups and forums and a lot of different areas. Um, there's been huge backlash, especially in the last year, of uh, Hollywood marketing specifically trying to pretend that there's no visual effects in movies when there's actually mm. a ton of visual effects in movies. And so everything is quote unquote in camera, right? Oh no, we did it all practically. Um, and we know that I've, you know, as a visual effects person, I've always worked very closely to match photography and to, and to have photography work with us, give us feedback. And that's sort of the best relationship. What do you think about this whole marketing of not, pretending there's no VFX, no CG in something. Well, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't know why anyone would deny that because even in the most pedestrian of stories, you know, a farmer and his wife and they're out in the fields, you know, there might be sky replacement. There could be, you know, it's a period piece. We need to get those light posts out. That's an effect. And that's right. in every movie. That is in every film. And yep. to deny it, it's... To the average viewer, it should be it should be irrelevant. I mean, right. they they should just be concerned about whether the story works, whether I like the actors, and how that's that. If they're right. starting to worry about such things as lighting and effects, you're starting to lose them right out of the gate. That's not a good thing. In terms of the industry, well, well who's trying to fool who? You know, the insiders. We know what the truth is, and that's just silly. It's silly. I think um, it's a a, a fool's paradise to be doing that to say oh we deny that there are effects in this film just because nobody nobody's flying through the air with a cape right. means that there, or there's no explosion or no dragons breathing fire means there's no effects in this film come on stop right. the nonsense this is silly well we've actually seen footage behind the scenes footage where there was a blue screen in the behind the scenes and they keyed out the blue screen and replaced it with something else to pretend there was no blue screen in that <laughs> shot so they're putting effects into to pretend there's no effects. <laughs> that's scary. That's scary. Yeah. I know we live in a world of illusion, but that's scary. I don't know yeah. about that. <laughs> what about, uh, you know, obviously, you, you know, you mentioned like <clears throat> with the internet now, people have are more savvy to be able to make their own films and to do different things. And obviously YouTube has become a huge, huge outsource of incredible content in a lot of ways that are happening. What do you think about independent filmmakers and their abilities today? Uh, and even independent visual effects and how this can all happen. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's the more people that have more access, the better. You know, right. everybody has a laptop or a word processing program, but that hasn't given us one more Shakespeare, you know? Right. Just by having this stuff out there is, is not a threat in any way to anyone. But the hope would be that some, it might reveal some, talent that might not have gone discovered otherwise. 
in the old days, there were so many gatekeepers and so many hurdles to clear before someone got a chance to do something, to put something on film, even in a very small way. It was incredibly expensive, cumbersome equipment, time-consuming. You needed a lot of support and a lot of people. Today, that's not the case at all. Somebody with an iPhone can do something absolutely, incredibly good, and that's terrific. So it's... I know a lot of people in the beginning used to look at it as a threat, the idea of the democratization of filmmaking. I don't see it that way at all. You know, as I said, everyone has access to a pen and paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, How many Picassos have we had? You know, it doesn't work like that. You know, hopefully the the true talent will be revealed and the cream will rise to the top. But to have everyone to be able to have access is always a good thing. And, And there are so many great, independent films that come out every year, independent productions. There's always a a number of them that are interesting and worthy. And you would hope that in the old days, they would have been made by a studio or a major and released to a theater. But that's just not really the world we're in anymore, at least at this moment. Perhaps it'll go back in some fashion or form at some point, but it's just not where we're at right now in 2024. So the independents always seem to find a way. So, you know, that's the thing. That passion somehow always seems to find a way and get them into the system somehow, however it gets out to the people that will ultimately see it, whatever audience will see it. Yeah, for sure. I remember actually in the early, early 2000s, my wife and I actually went to uh, see uh, uh, John Waters talk, and we love John Waters. Yes. Um, and uh, it was around that time when uh, the first HD camcorders were coming out, right? So it was suddenly possible to do like an HD image in, in a semi-affordable camera. And if people were saying, what do you think about the fact that these cameras are available and quote-unquote anyone can make a feature film? And his response was like, I think it's wonderful that everyone can make a feature film, but not everyone should. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's exactly correct. And, and the streets are littered with the bodies of the people who tried, who probably would have been better off, you know, writing a novel. Right. But um, that's part of the process. That's part of the weeding out. And that's going to happen. And uh, again, the audience dictates. They make the choice of what they want to see. And that dictates what we call a success these days. Yeah. And in light of that, that specific thing, obviously, another big part of the discussion, especially as you know, in the in the VFX and CG world that I live in, there's a huge concept of the threat and or opportunity of a lot of the AI tools. What is the perspective? How does that sort of work with what you're thinking of? Like how does AI sort of represent either threat or, 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 or opportunities on that side of things? Well, you know, I don't know yet how it's going to translate itself just in a day-to-day practical way in, in terms of what cinematographers do. What is a little spooky is the notion that you will be able to ask your AI to give me a 90-minute film about such and such, and I want it shot in the style of Roger Deakins, Mm -hmm. and bang, there it will be. I've seen short examples of that type of thing, and it's incredibly good, and uh, I don't know. Uh, That does not bode well on a certain level, but it might, in another way, it might harken back to the human touch, you know, where I said Gordon Willis, Victor Camper, those people, they were hired at that time because only they could deliver the type of thing that they did in the way that they did. Um, 
AI, if it becomes something that, that moves in that direction, it might bring the onus back to the individual who can only do something their way, that even AI can't imitate it in such a, it, it might fabricate it, but it can't imitate it in, in a precise way. Almost mm -hmm. like, I think I may have said it to you the other day, Navajovians on the set. I think I said to someone about where there's a mistake woven into the fabric specifically to remind that a human hand did this. It's not so perfect after all. Yep. And mistakes and things that we see in films, some of the, the older films that I love, they, they filled chock full of little things that I notice and very few others, I'm sure, maybe another cinematographer, maybe you might notice, but mm -hmm. you go, ah, there's the human touch. You know, in Citizen Kane, there's a shot where the camera is moving into the library um, behind, I can't remember the actor's name, but the actor who is, um, he's about to go into um, the archive about Kane's life and he's, walks through the door and the camera's following him in. And just as the camera's about to cross the threshold of the door, you see a shadow of the map box on the left side of the doorway going through. The camera that was used to shoot that is sitting on display at the ASC clubhouse right now, but with the very map box that created that shadow. But every time right. I see that, I'm reminded, this is the greatest film universally acknowledged as one of the greatest films ever made by one of the greatest cinematographers who ever lived, Greg Toland. And here is a mistake, an absolute mistake. The average individual will not see it, I promise you. They will not flag it. But I know exactly mm -hmm. what it is. You can see the shape of the map box, and I've seen it in a thousand films, not least of which my own from time to time. And there's a, there's a mistake in one of the greatest films ever made by one of the greatest cinematographers ever made, and it humanizes that film even more for me. I can see those people and feel them and know that their handprints are on this and genuine living, breathing people actually made this at one point in history. And that to me is fascinating. Oh, that is so exciting. And maybe with AI and what's coming, what's here, maybe things like, not necessarily that, but things that will indicate the human touch will become of greater value. So there, there might be a, an unintended fabulous dividend to all of this because the more humanity we can get out of these things and the more we can associate real people with them, the better, the better. Yeah. I think, you know, by definition, AI can only do things that it already knows that's already been done. Right. So if it's going to imitate a Roger Deakins film, it's because can see Roger Deakins film and we've all acknowledged that we love Roger Deakins, right? So same with Gordon. When Gordon Willis was doing what he was doing, the reason it was so controversial because no one had done it before. So there's no way an AI could do that because no one's done it before. <laughs> yes. Yes. But, right? um, yes, but the, the notion of, um, people, you know, the more, the more I do this and the longer I go on in my career is the more that I, I, treasure the experiences I have with the people I'm working with. And right. that wasn't always the case, but it really has become the case for me. Um, and I always feel that each time out, I'm trying to get more of that into whatever it is I'm doing. And right. sometimes it can be in a very abstract way and sometimes a little bit more overt, but uh, that really has become important. And maybe it's just a byproduct of maturing, but right. It is something that I think is very important that 
I, I hope doesn't get lost as, as things become even more further, as, as technology moves further along. I just hope that that's not something that gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah, I, 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 I hope so as well. Um, so uh, the, the, I mean, this, we obviously, you know, I'll let people know, but we've been looking at stuff with you in terms of in-camera visual effects and LED walls. Do you think there are more opportunities for collaboration between the computer graphics world and cinematographers that are coming up in the future? And how do you see that future happening? Well, there certainly are more opportunities coming as, as the technology becomes more prevalent. Um, I think there won't be, it won't be long and we'll be doing so, so much more in the volume and with LED walls. And that's a good thing. What would be important, though, I think, would be to get the cinematographer involved earlier in the process, as early in the process as possible. Yep. Um, I think that would save time and a lot of uh, going up blind alleys. Uh, that's the case in, in most every situation in prep, in pre-production. Forget about the technology, just starting right out of the gate. The sooner you can get the cinematographer there is the more time and money I think you'll ultimately save. You can save everyone a lot of distraction and, and aggravation by just getting to right to the point and knowing what the requirements are and being conversant with the technology on set as well as the technology that gets the material onto the LED or onto the volume. I think the sooner the better and the more open that collaboration is would be the better for all parties involved. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing. I mean, you know, I, before in camera visual effects, I was a uh, uh, I was a VFX supervisor, but I also was most of my background was in in lighting, which was basically the the digital version of a, <laughs> a cinematography. Um, and I always my job was to try to guess what the cinematographer did <laughs> and mimic it CG so yeah. that I can match everything and make sure those worlds are in the same place. And but my you know, I never actually communicated with a cinematographer because it was always like, it was shot, just here's the plate, match it, right? Yeah. And it was yeah. kind of a challenge. Uh, and it wasn't until I did, was doing a car commercial where the director hired a cinematographer. It was an all CG car commercial, but the director hired a cinematographer to be a consultant for mm -hmm. us on how to light things. And we basically used, you know, digital Fisher lights everywhere and we did all these yep. things, but he made us add something that I never, that was great. It was a shot close up on a bumper of the car as it's kind of moving forward. And he made us add, we call it like just a bunch of crap behind the camera, which essentially is like craft services and video village yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. to into that reflection, just to break up the, the perfect horizon. And it made it yeah. so much richer for very subtle yeah. reasons. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what I'm speaking to. Yeah. Um, you know, just open communication and, and yeah. a free exchange of ideas and opinions. It really, it, it helps. I've never seen a situation like that where it didn't help everyone enormously. And, and hopefully we're all working towards the same end. So there shouldn't be any resistance to that, you know, but occasionally yeah. there is. It's never good. Yeah, I think there's opportunities really for, uh, especially now that we're looking at trying to do visual effects as soon as we can or in actual production, to opportunities for companies like the, the the ASC and even the VES to sort of come together, educationally speaking, and educate each other on everything we're doing so that we can make that communication even stronger in some ways. Yeah, 
Yes. Well, the technology committee uh, at the ASC, which is headed by Curtis Clark, um, they do a very good job of, of reaching out and bringing people in. Um, in fact, if you're not aware of it, you should become a part of it. It's okay. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's a fabulous group of people, and um, they do great work in that respect. And it's all about finding the common ground and, and keeping the creative intent sacred, but finding the common ground for everyone to contribute to that across the, the, the borders of, of departments and, and, and different crafts. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. That's, that's very good. Awesome. Well, listen, like I said, we're going to, uh, we will probably do another, uh, episode with you. I know I can let people know that we're obviously working on a project together, but we'll get people more detail about that as we come uh, yeah. <laughs> on the other side of it. But thank you so much for sharing your history and giving us your point thank of view. You. It's always wonderful hanging out thank on set with you and geeking out about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I know, um, we could go really deep if we let ourselves, but I hope uh, this is accessible to everyone. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. It's fun.